The Biden administration is finally out with its highly anticipated national cyber strategy. The document, released yesterday, outlines a shift to what it calls a more defensible digital ecosystem. It puts more responsibility on technology manufacturers to build secure products. For more, here's Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, what are the big themes in this Biden cyber strategy? Yeah, well, if the previous strategy from the Trump administration in 2018 was all about offense and defending forward, this is all about defense and increasing the baseline levels of security across technologies. Uh, Biden in the opening forward talks about how digital technologies touch every aspect of modern life, especially after COVID. And folks need to be able to trust the underlying digital ecosystem is, quote, safe, reliable and secure. So the strategy includes five major pillars, as strategies do. Uh, One is defend critical infrastructure. Second, disrupt and dismantle threat actors. That's kind of that offensive piece carrying forward the Trump administration's defend forward piece. Third, shape market forces to drive security and resilience. Fourth, invest in a resilient future. And fifth, forge international partnerships. So there's a lot of ground covered in these strategies, but one of the big themes is really realigning more responsibility to big tech companies. Kemba Walden, the acting national cyber director, briefed reporters and talked about that a little bit. It will rebalance the responsibility for managing cyber risk onto those who are most able to bear it. Today, across the public and private sectors, we tend to devolve responsibility for cyber risk downwards. We ask individuals, small businesses, and local governments to shoulder a significant burden for defending us all. This isn't just unfair, it's ineffective. The biggest, most capable, and best positioned actors in our digital ecosystem can and should shoulder a greater share of the burden for managing cyber risk and keeping us all safe. Yeah, and some of them want to charge $12 a month for the privilege. So how does this plan envision rebalancing responsibility for cyber risks and not charging people $12 a month? Right. Well, you know, the big thing here is shifting liability for insecure products and services to software vendors. The White House plans on working with Congress and the private sector to develop software liability legislation that would prevent manufacturers and software publishers from fully disclaiming liability by contract um, and also establishing higher standards of care for software in specific high-risk scenarios. This is something that Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Director Jen Easterly has already been priming the pump on in several speeches since the start of the new year. She's talked about increasing or baking in security by design. So these big technology companies, they don't call them out by name, obviously, in the strategy, but they want them to stop shipping insecure products going forward. And so what about the role of the federal government in driving, as you put it, those market forces? Sounds like like the equivalent of the five-mile-an-hour bumper and the airbag coming for software. Yeah, well, beyond that legislation that they envision, which will certainly be a heavy lift to, to get across and sign into law, there's also a role for federal procurement. The strategy notes that contracting requirements for vendors that sell to the government have been an effective tool in the past for improving cybersecurity. This is something that's actually already underway, uh, stemming from that May 2021 cyber executive order. Officials are uh, drafting new federal acquisition regulation rules around software development standards. 
And the strategy calls for continuing to pilot new concepts for testing cybersecurity requirements and enforcing them through procurement. Yeah, that sounds like a bit of an uphill battle simply because the regulations could have costs that would trigger the type of review of big regulation. And there's already like a camel line of big regulations into the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. So this sounds like a bit of a heavy lift just from a process standpoint. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a lot coming down the pipeline. The strategy doesn't talk about uh, maybe the elephant in the room in this topic, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program from the Defense Department, CMMC, enforcing cyber standards, ensuring contractors are following those. That still has to get through the process. The strategy does talk about the Justice Department's Cyber Civil Fraud Initiative as kind of a key backstop for enforcing these contracting requirements if they get through the process, and there are ones that are already in place. So there is a bit of a backstop there, but you're right, it's going to take some um, lifts to to get these regulations in place. Sure, and if there's legislation, you've got a divided Congress, and anything that has to do with shaping market forces sometimes doesn't sit well with Republicans as it does maybe with Democrats, perhaps. Yeah, you're already seeing a little bit of pushback from uh, the House, House Republicans, House Homeland Security Chairman Mark Green and Cybersecurity Subcommittee Chairman Andrew Garbarino released a statement basically calling the strategy a call for more, uh, quote unquote, red tape, especially when it comes to critical infrastructure. The Biden administration wants to put more regulations in place there. But clearly, these House Republicans are coming out and saying that they're not exactly a fan of more regulation. Yeah, let's talk about security of critical infrastructure. That's part of the plan, too. And tell us a little bit more about that strategy for regulation there. Yeah, essentially, it looks to set uh, minimum security requirements across the 16 critical infrastructure sectors. And this is really a shift that's already underway. The Biden administration has already put out new requirements for the pipeline and uh, rail sectors within the past year. And there are new ones coming for the water sector that will happen uh, through the EPA's sanitary review process, where they also look at cybersecurity. The strategy talks about wanting to really spread some sort of minimum level of security across sectors. They call for performance-based standards, which is certainly an industry-friendly term, but at the same time, they want more regulation. Ann Newberger is the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology, and she talked about the need for regulation in critical infrastructure. Information sharing and public-private partnerships are inadequate for the threats we face when we look at critical infrastructure. We've made major progress in executing this as a core Biden administration commitment in the first two years, and we'll continue to carry it forward with the executive branch authorities we have in place and work with Congress to develop those limited additional authorities we may still need. Yeah, and they've got that recent rail spill in Pennsylvania, kind of a trifecta. You had a chemical spill and a rail horrible accident, which contaminated air and water. So maybe it's a quinella. Everything got harmed there. And I guess they can cite that as a case in point for the need for more of this. What about the uh, regulation idea once again in Congress that's going to have some rough roads right now? Yeah, as I mentioned, uh, Mark Green, the chairman of the, the Homeland Security Committee, That's the committee that any of these, a lot of these new proposed regulations will uh, have to to get through. He's really calling for more harmonization for for agencies to use their existing authorities. He calls this new strategy and the regulatory push a push for more, quote unquote, red tape. Republicans on that committee want to see actually uh, CISA continue to be the lead for federal cybersecurity and critical infrastructure resilience. And, and that's something that the strategy articulates as well. 
But as Ann Neuberger said, they're looking to work with lawmakers to essentially put in place new regulations where there aren't any in place yet um, for other sectors. And there could be some roadblocks there in the House. Now, this strategy seems to apply mostly to the various sectors of industry, with the government's role being regulation and legislation to enable what it is they want for outcomes. Would you say then that it's complementary to the executive order on cybersecurity, which applied to the government, which the Biden administration released just almost two years ago? Yeah, exactly. You know, the strategy doesn't include a heavy uh, emphasis on federal systems and networks uh, beyond talking about how that cybersecurity executive order uh, nearly two years ago really uh, included a heavy emphasis on shifting to zero trust and better software security. And and now they want to kind of spread those ideas maybe a little bit more broadly across the board. We mentioned regulation and liability. There's also a lot of talk in the strategy about public-private partnerships, working with international partners on international standards. You could certainly see industry wanting to ensure that if there's going to be some new requirements and regulation, that they're kind of international across the board. There aren't different requirements for different sectors and uh, businesses. Sure. I can see the European Union spreading here when it comes to some of these measures. And are there any timelines or deadlines for implementing all of these ideas in that strategy? Well, there's no big deadline for for anything quite yet. This is a 10-year strategy. That's the intent, at least. Some of these things will take time. For instance, the software liability legislation that we talked about earlier, a senior administration official told reporters that that's a longer-term project. The official said not to expect any legislation over the next year. They're going to work with industry first before going to Congress. Uh, There's an implementation plan that's still in the works to further sketch out the different roles that certainly agencies will play in carrying these ideas forward. And we should expect to see that within the next few months. What do they say about software unsafe at any runtime? Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, 
I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be 
impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that, that's you know? Brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.